Chapter One of The World Set Free by H. G. Wells. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Adam Marsitich. June 2009, Alexandria, Virginia. The World Set Free by H. G. Wells. Chapter the First The New Source of Energy. Section 1. The problem which was already being mooted by such scientific men as Ramsey, Rutherford, and Soddy, in the very beginning of the twentieth century, the problem of inducing radioactivity in the heavier elements and so tapping the internal energy of atoms, was solved by a wonderful combination of induction, intuition, and luck by Holston so soon as the year 1933. From the first detection of radioactivity to its first subjugation to human purpose measured little more than a quarter of a century. For twenty years after that, indeed, minor difficulties prevented any striking practical application of his success, but the essential thing was done. This new boundary in the march of human progress was crossed in that year. He set up atomic disintegration in a minute particle of bismuth. It exploded with great violence into a heavy gas of extreme radioactivity, which disintegrated in its turn in the course of seven days, and it was only after another year's work that he was able to show practically that the last result of this rapid release of energy was gold. But the thing was done. At the cost of a blistered chest and an injured finger, and from the moment when the invisible speck of bismuth flashed into writhing and rending energy, Holston knew that he had opened a way for mankind, however narrow and dark it might still be, to worlds of limitless power. He recorded as much in the strange diary biography he left the world, a diary that was up to that particular moment a mass of speculations and calculations, and which suddenly became, for a space, an amazingly minute and human record of sensations and emotions that all humanity might understand. He gives, in broken phrases and often single words, it is true, but none the less vividly for that, a record of the twenty-four hours following the demonstration of the correctness of his intricate tracery of computations and guesses. I thought I should not sleep, he writes. The words omitted are supplied in brackets, on account of pain in the hand and chest and the wonder of what I had done, slept like a child. He felt strange and disconcerted the next morning. He had nothing to do. He was living alone in apartments in Bloomsbury, and he decided to go up to Hampstead Heath, which he had known when he was a little boy as a breezy playground. He went up by the underground tube that was then the recognized means of travel from one part of London to another, and walked up Heath Street from the tube station to the open heath. He found it a gully of planks and scaffoldings between the hoardings of house wreckers. The spirit of the times had seized upon that narrow, steep, and winding thoroughfare, and was in the act of making it commodious and interesting according to the remarkable ideals of neo-georgian aestheticism such is the illogical quality of humanity that holston 
fresh from work that was like a petard under the seat of current civilization, saw these changes with regret. He had come up Heath Street perhaps a thousand times, had known the windows of all the little shops, spent hours in the varnished cinematograph there, and marveled at the high-flung early Georgian houses upon the westward bank of that old gully of a thoroughfare. He felt strange with all these familiar things gone. He escaped at last with a feeling of relief from this choked alley of trenches and holes and cranes, and emerged upon the old familiar scene about the white stone pond. That, at least, was very much as it used to be. There were still the fine old red brick houses to left and right of him. The reservoir had been improved by a portico of marble, the white-fronted inn with the clustering flowers above its portico, still stood out at the angle of the ways, and the blue view to Harrow Hill and Harrow Spire, a view of hills and trees and shining waters and wind-driven cloud shadows, was like the opening of a great window to the ascending Londoner. All that was very reassuring. There was the same strolling crowd, the same perpetual miracle of motors dodging through it harmlessly, escaping headlong into the country from the sabbatical stuffiness behind and below them. There was a band still, a women's suffrage meeting, for the suffrage women had won their way back to the tolerance, a trifle derisive of the populace again. Socialist orators, politicians, a band, the same wild uproar of dogs, frantic with the gladness of their one blessed weekly release from the backyard and the chain and away along the road to the Spaniards strolled a vast multitude, saying, as ever, that the view of London was exceptionally clear that day. Young Holston's face was white. He walked with that uneasy affection of ease that marks an overstrained nervous system and an under-exercised body. He hesitated at the white stone pond whether to go to the left of it or the right, and again at the fork of the roads. He kept shifting his stick in his hand, and every now and then he would get in the way of people on the footpath or be jostled by them because of the uncertainty of his movements. He felt, he confesses, inadequate to ordinary existence. He seemed to himself to be something inhuman and mischievous. All the people about him looked fairly prosperous, fairly happy, fairly well adapted to the lives they had to lead. A week of work in a Sunday of best clothes and mild promenading, and he had launched something that would disorganize the entire fabric that held their contentments and ambitions and satisfactions together. Felt like an imbecile who has presented a box full of loaded revolvers to a crash, he notes. He met a man named Lawson, an old schoolfellow, of whom history now knows only that he was red-faced and had a terrier. He and Holston walked together, and Holston was sufficiently pale and jumpy for Lawson to tell him he overworked and needed a holiday. They sat down at a little table outside the county council house of Golders Hill Park, and set one of the waiters to the bowl and bush for a couple of bottles of beer, no doubt at Lawson's suggestion. The beer warmed Holston's rather dehumanized system. He began to tell Lawson as clearly as he could to what his great discovery amounted. 
Lawson feigned attention, but indeed he had neither the knowledge nor the imagination to understand. In the end, before many years are out, this must eventually change war, transit, lighting, building, and every sort of manufacture, even agriculture, every material human concern. Then Holston stopped short. Lawson had leapt to his feet. Damn that dog, cried Lawson. Look at it now. Hi, here. Phew, phew, phew. Come here, Bobs, come here. The young scientific man, with his bandaged hand, sat at the green table, too tired to convey the wonder of the thing he had sought so long. His friend whistled and bawled for his dog, and the Sunday people drifted about them through the spring sunshine. For a moment or so, Holston stared at Lawson in astonishment, for he had been too intent upon what he had been saying to realize how little Lawson had attended. Then he remarked, Well! and smiled faintly, and finished the tankard of beer before him. Lawson sat down again. One must look after one's dog, he said, with a note of apology. What was it you were telling me? Section 2 In the evening, Holston went out again. He walked to St. Paul's Cathedral, and stood for a time near the door listening to the evening service. The candles upon the altar reminded him in some odd way of the fireflies at Fiesole. Then he walked back through the evening lights to Westminster. He was oppressed, he was indeed scared, by a sense of the immense consequences of his discovery. He had a vague idea that night that he ought not to publish his results, that they were premature, that some secret association of wise men should take care of his work and hand it on from generation to generation until the world was riper for its practical application. He felt that nobody in all the thousands of people he passed had really awakened to the fact of change. They trusted the world for what it was, not to alter too rapidly, to respect their trusts, their assurances, their habits, their little accustomed traffics and hard-won positions. He went into those little gardens beneath the overhanging, brightly lit masses of the Savoy Hotel and the Hotel Cecil. He sat down on a seat and became aware of the talk of the two people next to him. It was a talk of a young couple evidently on the eve of marriage. The man was congratulating himself on having regular employment at last. They like me, he said and I like the job. If I work up, in a dozen years or so, I ought to be getting something pretty comfortable. That's the plain sense of it, Hetty. There ain't no reason whatsoever why we shouldn't get along very decently, very decently indeed. The desire for little successes amidst conditions securely fixed. So it struck upon Holston's mind. He added in his diary, I had a sense of all this globe as that. By that phrase he meant a kind of clairvoyant vision of this populated world as a whole, of all its cities and towns and villages, its high roads and the inns beside them, its gardens and farms and upland pastures, its boatmen and sailors, its ships coming along the great circles of the ocean, its timetables and appointments and payments and dues, as if it were one unified and progressive spectacle. Sometimes such visions came to him, 
His mind, accustomed to great generalizations, and yet acutely sensitive to detail, saw things far more comprehensively than the minds of most of his contemporaries. Usually the teeming sphere moved on to its predestined ends, and circled with a stately swiftness on its path about the sun. Usually it was all a living progress that altered under his regard, but now fatigue a little deadened him to that incessancy of life. It seemed now just an eternal circling. He lapsed to the commoner persuasion of the great fixities and recurrences of the human routine, the remoter past of wandering savagery, the inevitable changes of tomorrow were veiled, and he saw only day and night, seed time and harvest, loving and begetting, births and deaths, walks in the summer sunlight and tales by the winter fireside, the ancient sequence of hope and acts and age perennially renewed, eddying on forever and ever, save that now the impious hand of research was raised to overthrow this drowsy, gently humming, habitual, sunlit spinning top of man's existence. For a time he forgot wars and crimes and hates and persecutions, famine and pestilence, the cruelties of beasts, weariness and the bitter wind, failure and insufficiency and retrocession. He saw all mankind in terms of the humble Sunday couple upon the seat beside him, who schemed their inglorious outlook and improbable contentments. I had a sense of all this globe as that. His intelligence struggled against this mood and struggled for a time in vain. He reassured himself against the invasion of this disconcerting idea that he was something strange and inhuman, a loose wanderer from the flock returning with evil gifts from his sustained unnatural excursions amidst the darkness and phosphorescences beneath the fair surfaces of life. Man had not been always thus. The instincts and desires of little home, the little plot, was not all his nature. Also he was an adventurer, an experimenter, an unresting curiosity, an insatiable desire. For a few thousand generations, indeed, he had tilled the earth and followed the seasons, saying his prayers, grinding his corn, and trampling the October winepress. Yet not for so long but that he was still full of restless stirrings. If there have been home and routine in the field, thought Holston, there have also been wonder and the sea. He turned his head and looked up over the back of the seat at the great hotels above him, full of softly shaded lights and the glow and color and stir of feasting. Might his gift to mankind mean simply more of that? He got up and walked out of the garden, surveying a passing tram-car laden with warm light, against the deep blues of evening, dripping and trailing long skirts of shining reflection. He crossed the embankment and stood for a time watching the dark river and turning ever and again to the lit buildings and bridges. His mind began to scheme conceivable replacements of all those clustering arrangements. It has begun, he writes in the diary in which these things are recorded. It is not for me to reach out to consequences I cannot foresee. I am a part, not a whole. I am a little instrument in the armory of change. If I were to burn all these papers, 
before a score of years had passed, some other man would be doing this. Section 3 Holston, before he died, was destined to see atomic energy dominating every other source of power, but for some years, yet a vast network of difficulties in detail and application kept the new discovery from any effective invasion of ordinary life. The path from the laboratory to the workshop is sometimes a tortuous one. Electromagnetic radiations were known and demonstrated for twenty years before Marconi made them practically available, and in the same way, it was twenty years before induced radioactivity could be brought to practical utilization. The thing, of course, was discussed very much, more perhaps at the time of its discovery than during the interval of technical adaptation, but with very little realization of the huge economic revolution that impended. What chiefly impressed the journalists of 1933 was the production of gold from bismuth and the realization, albeit upon unprofitable lines, of the alchemist's dreams. There was a considerable amount of discussion and expectation in that more intelligent section of the educated publics of the various civilized countries which followed scientific development, but for the most part the world went about its business, as the inhabitants of those Swiss villages which live under the perpetual threat of overhanging rocks and mountains go about their business, just as though the possible was impossible, as though the inevitable was postponed forever because it was delayed. It was in 1953 that the first Holston-Roberts engine brought induced radioactivity into the sphere of industrial production, and its first general use was to replace the steam engine in electrical generating stations. Hard upon the appearance of this came the Das-Tata engine, the invention of two among the brilliant galaxy of Bengali inventors, the modernization of Indian thought was producing at this time, which was used chiefly for automobiles, aeroplanes, waterplanes, and such like, mobile purposes. The American Kemp engine, differing widely in principle but equally practicable, and the Krupp-Erlanger came hard upon the heels of this, and by the autumn of 1954, a gigantic replacement of industrial methods and machinery was in progress all about the habitable globe. Small wonder was this, when the cost, even of these earliest and clumsiest of atomic engines, is compared with that of the power they superseded. Allowing for the lubrication of the Das Tata engine, once it was started, cost a penny to run thirty-seven miles, and added only nine and a quarter pounds to the weight of the carriage it drove. It made the heavy alcohol-driven automobile of the time ridiculous in appearance as well as preposterously costly. For many years the price of coal and every form of liquid fuel had been clambering to levels that made even the revival of the draft horse seem a practicable possibility. And now with the abrupt relaxation of this stringency, the change in appearance of the traffic upon the world's roads was instantaneous. In three years, the frightful armored monsters that had hooted and smoked and thundered about the world for four awful decades were swept away to the dealers in old metal. 
and the highways thronged with light and clean and shimmering shapes of silvered steel. At the same time, a new impetus was given to aviation by the relatively enormous power for weight of the atomic engine. It was at last possible to add Redmayne's ingenious helicopter ascent and descent engine to the vertical propeller that had hitherto been the sole driving force of the aeroplane without overweighting the machine, and men found themselves possessed of an instrument of flight that could hover or ascend or descend vertically and gently as well as rush wildly through the air. The last dread of flying vanished. As the journalists of the time phrased it, this was the epoch of the leap into the air. The new atomic aeroplane became indeed a mania. Every one of means was frantic to possess a thing so controllable, so secure and so free from dust and danger of the road. And in France alone, in the year 1943, 30,000 of these new aeroplanes were manufactured and licensed, and soared hummingly softly into the sky. And with an equal speed atomic engines of various types invaded industrialism. The railways paid enormous premiums for priority in the delivery of atomic traction engines. Atomic smelting was embarked upon so eagerly as to lead to a number of disastrous explosions, due to inexperienced handling of the new power, and the revolutionary cheapening of both materials and electricity made the entire reconstruction of domestic buildings a matter merely dependent upon a reorganization of the methods of the builder and the house furnisher. Viewed from the side of the new power and from the point of view of those who financed and manufactured the new engines and material it required, the age of the leap into the air was one of astonishing prosperity. Patent-holding companies were presently paying dividends of five or six hundred percent, and enormous fortunes were made and fantastic wages earned by all who were concerned in the new development. This prosperity was not a little enhanced by the fact that, in both the Das Tata and Holston Roberts engines, one of the recoverable waste products was gold. The former disintegrated dust of bismuth and the latter dust of lead, and that this new supply of gold led quite naturally to a rise in prices throughout the world. This spectacle of feverish enterprise was productivity. This crowding flight of happy and fortunate rich people, every great city was as if a crawling anthill had suddenly taken wing, was the bright side of the opening phase of the new epoch in human history. Beneath that brightness was a gathering darkness, a deepening dismay. If there was a vast development of production, there was also a huge destruction of values. These glaring factories working night and day, these glittering new vehicles swinging noiselessly along the roads, these flights of dragonflies that swooped and soared and circled in the air, were indeed no more than the brightness of lamps and fires, that gleam out when the world sinks towards twilight and the night. Between these high lights accumulated disaster, social catastrophe. The coal mines were manifestly doomed to closure, at no very distant date. The vast amount of capital invested in oil was becoming unsaleable. Millions of coal miners, steel workers upon the old lines, 
vast swarms of unskilled or underskilled laborers in innumerable occupations were being flung out of employment by the superior efficiency of the new machinery the rapid fall in the cost of transit was destroying high land values at every center of population the value of existing house property had become problematical gold was undergoing headlong depreciation all the securities upon which the credit of the world rested were slipping and sliding banks were tottering the stock exchanges were scenes of feverish panic this was the reverse of the spectacle these were the black and monstrous under consequences of the leap into the air there is a story of a demented london stockbroker running into the threadneedle street and tearing off his clothes as he ran the steel trust is scrapping the whole of its plant he shouted the state railways are going to scrap all their engines everything's going to be scrapped everything come and scrap the mint you fellows come and scrap the mint in the year nineteen fifty five the suicide rate for the united states of america quadrupled any previous record there was an enormous increase also in violent crime throughout the world the thing had come upon an unprepared humanity it seemed as though human society was to be smashed by its own magnificent gains for there had been no foresight of these things there had been no attempt anywhere even to compute the probable dislocations this flood of inexpensive energy would produce in human affairs the world in these days was not really governed at all in the sense in which government came to be understood in subsequent years government was a treaty not a design it was forensic conservative disputatious unseeing unthinking uncreative throughout the world except where the vestiges of absolutism still sheltered the court favorite and the trusted servant it was in the hands of the predominant caste of lawyers who had an enormous advantage in being the only trained caste their professional education and every circumstance in the manipulation of the fantastically naive electoral methods by which they clambered to power conspire to keep them contemptuous of facts conscientiously unimaginative alert to claim and seize advantages and suspicious of every generosity government was an obstructive business of energetic fractions progress went on outside and in spite of public activities and legislation was the last crippling recognition of needs so clamorous and imperative and facts so aggressively established as to invade even the dingy seclusions of the judges and threaten the very existence of the otherwise inattentive political machine the world was so little governed that with the very coming of plenty in the full tide of an incalculable abundance when everything necessary to satisfy human needs and everything necessary to realize such will and purpose as existed then in human hearts was already at hand one has still to tell of hardship famine anger confusion conflict and incoherent suffering there was no scheme for the distribution of this vast new wealth that had come at last within the reach of men there was no clear conception that any such distribution was possible 
As one attempts a comprehensive view of these opening years of the new age, as one measures it against the latent achievement that later years have demonstrated, one begins to measure the blindness, the narrowness, the insensate, unimaginative individualism of the pre-atomic time. Under this tremendous dawn of power and freedom, under a sky ablaze with promise, in the very presence of science standing like some bountiful goddess over all the squat darkness of human life, holding patiently in her strong arms, until men chose to take them, security, plenty, the solution of riddles, the key of the bravest adventurers, in her very presence, and with the earnest of her gifts in court, the world was to witness such things as the squalid spectacle of the Das Tata patent litigation. There in a stuffy court in London, a grimy oblong box of a room, during the exceptional heat of the May of 1956, the leading counsel of the day argued and shouted over a miserable little matter of more royalties or less, and whether the Das Tata Company might not bar the Holston Roberts methods of utilizing the new power. The Das Tata people were indeed making a strenuous attempt to secure a world monopoly in atomic engineering. The judge, after the manner of those times, sat raised above the court, wearing a preposterous gown and a foolish huge wig. The council also wore dirty-looking little wigs and queer black gowns over their usual costume, wigs and gowns that were held to be necessary to their pleading, and upon unclean wooden benches stirred and whispered artful-looking solicitors, busily scribbling reporters, the parties to the case, expert witnesses, interested people, and a jostling confusion of subpoenaed persons, briefless young barristers, forming a style on the most esteemed and truculent examples, and casual eccentric spectators who preferred this pit of iniquity to the free sunlight outside. Everyone was damply hot. The examining king's counsel wiped the perspiration from his huge, clean-shaven upper lip, and into this atmosphere of grasping contention and human exaltations the daylight filtered through a window that was manifestly dirty the jury sat in a double pew to the left of the judge looking as uncomfortable as frogs that have fallen into an ash pit and in the witness box lied the would-be omnivorous das under cross-examination holston had always been accustomed to publish his results so soon as they appeared to him to be sufficiently advanced to furnish a basis for further work, and to that confiding disposition and one happy flash of adaptive invention the alert Das owed his claim. But indeed a vast multitude of such sharp people were clutching, patenting, preempting, monopolizing this or that feature of the new development, seeking to subdue this gigantic winged power to the purposes of their little lusts and avarice. That trial is just one of innumerable disputes of the same kind. For a time, the face of the world festered with patent legislation. It chanced, however, to have one oddly dramatic feature in the fact that Holston, after being kept waiting about the court for two days as a beggar, might have waited at a rich man's door, 
after being bullied by ushers and watched by policemen, was called as a witness, rather severely handled by counsel, and told not to quibble by the judge when he was trying to be absolutely explicit. The judge scratched his nose with a quill pen, and sneered at Holston's astonishment round the corner of his monstrous wig. Holston was a great man, was he? Well, in a law court, great men were put in their places. We want to know, has the plaintiff added anything to this, or hasn't he? said the judge. We don't want to have your views whether Sir Philip Doss's improvements were merely superficial adaptations, or whether they were implicit in your paper. No doubt, after the manner of inventors, you think most things that were ever likely to be discovered are implicit in your papers. No doubt, also, you think, too, that most subsequent additions and modifications are merely superficial. Inventors have a way of thinking that. The law isn't concerned with that sort of thing. The law has nothing to do with the vanity of inventors. The law is concerned with the question whether these patent rights have the novelty the plaintiff claims for them, what the admission may or may not stop, and all these other things you are saying in your overflowing zeal to answer more than the questions addressed to you. None of these things have anything whatever to do with the case in hand. It is a matter of constant astonishment to me in this court to see how you scientific men, with all your extraordinary claims to precision and veracity, wander and wander so soon as you get into the witness box. I know no more unsatisfactory class of witness. The plain and simple question is, has Sir Philip Doss made any real addition to existing knowledge and methods in this matter, or has he not? We don't want to know whether they were large or small additions, nor what the consequences of your admission may be. That you will leave to us. Holston was silent. Surely, said the judge, almost pityingly. No, he hasn't, said Holston perceiving that, for once in his life, he must disregard infinitesimals. Ah, said the judge, now why couldn't you say that when counsel put the question? An entry in Holston's diary autobiography, dated five days later, runs, Still amazed. The law is the most dangerous thing in this country. It is hundreds of years old. It hasn't an idea. The oldest of old bottles and this new wine, the most explosive wine, something will overtake them. Section 4 There was a certain truth in Holston's assertion that the law was hundreds of years old. It was, in relation to current thought and widely accepted ideas, an archaic thing. While almost all the material and methods of life had been changing rapidly, and were now changing still more rapidly, the law courts and the legislatures of the world were struggling desperately to meet modern demands with devices and procedures, conceptions of rights and property, and authority and obligation that dated from the rude compromises of relatively barbaric times. The horsehair wigs and antic dresses of the British judges their musty courts and overbearing manners, 
were indeed only the outward and visible intimations of profounder anachronisms. The legal and political organization of the earth in the middle twentieth century was indeed everywhere like a complicated garment, outworn yet strong, that now fettered the governing body that once it had protected. Yet that same spirit of free-thinking and outspoken publication that in the field of natural science had been the beginning of the conquest of nature was at work throughout all the eighteenth and nineteenth centuries, preparing the spirit of the new world within the degenerating body of the old. The idea of a greater subordination of individual interests and established institutions to the collective future is traceable more and more clearly in the literature of those times, and movement after movement frettered itself away in criticism of and opposition to first this aspect and then that of the legal, social, and political order. Already in the early nineteenth century, Shelley, with no scrap of alternative, is denouncing the established rulers of the world as anarchs, and the entire system of ideas and suggestions that was known as socialism, and more particularly its international side, feeble as it was in creative proposals or any method of transition, still witnesses to the growth of a conception of a modernized system of interrelationships that should supplant the existing tangle of proprietary legal ideas. The word sociology was invented by Herbert Spencer, a popular writer upon the philosophical subjects who flourished about the middle of the nineteenth century, but the idea of a state, planned as an electric traction system is planned, without reference to pre-existing apparatus, upon scientific lines, did not take a very strong hold upon the popular imagination of the world until the twentieth century. Then, the growing impatience of the American people with the monstrous and socially paralyzing party systems that had sprung out of their absurd electoral arrangements led to the appearance of what came to be called the modern state movement, and a galaxy of brilliant writers in America, Europe, and the East stirred up the world to the thought of bolder rearrangements of social interaction, property, employment, education, and government than had ever been contemplated before. No doubt these modern state ideas were very largely the reflection upon social and political thought of the vast revolution in material things that had been in progress for two hundred years, but for a long time they seemed to be having no more influence upon existing institutions than the writings of Rousseau and Voltaire seemed to have had at the time of the death of the latter. They were fermenting in men's minds, and it needed only just such social and political stresses as the coming of the atomic mechanisms brought about to thrust them forward abruptly into crude and startling realization.